we'll have to find out in the history books how much Putin being in isolation for two years during the um, COVID pandemic allowed him to, you know, focus on his uh, poor interpretations of history, to to double down on all these resentments he's built up over 20 years of why doesn't Ukraine realise how much we love them? I've seen discussions of it's like um, victim blaming or a battered wife. I love you. I love you so much. Why are you moving away from me? If you didn't move away from me, I wouldn't have to beat you. I mean, that is that's literally what's happening in a way. Welcome to Radiate Radio, your international sound wave for sit-downs, podcasts, and more. So stay tuned and follow our Instagram page for the latest. Okay, uh, welcome everybody to the sixth episode of In Retrospect. Right now we're in the studio with Dr. Freer. Dr. Freer teaches a range of courses at Leiden University, mostly focused on Russia and the countries of Eurasia bordering Russia. Uh, he's an expert in authoritarianism in this region, and in 2018 he published a book, Belarus under Lukashenko, Adaptive Authoritarianism. This book explains the rise uh, to power of President Alexander Lukashenko, now he maintained his grip on Belarus. Today, however, we're going to interview Dr. Freer on another strongman in the region. Um, of expertise, and this is President Vladimir Putin. Uh, Vladimir Putin ordered the invasion of Ukraine on February 24th of this year, causing a shockwave around the world. Today we will ask Dr. Fair questions on Mr. Putin's path to power, his worldview, and which factors in and outside Russia uh, influences uh, his decision-making. Dr. Fair, thank you very much for uh, uh, being here today. Is there anything I missed in, in the introduction? No, you're fine. Thank you very much okay, for inviting okay. me. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, so first, I want to ask you some questions about um, Putin himself. Who is the man? What did his political career look like? Um, so first, there's a lot of talk about the elite surrounding Putin, be it the KGB or the oligarchs surrounding him. And our first question is, to what extent uh, does his relation with the ruling elites influence his policy? It's been very interesting watching the latest developments because he's been in power now for 22 years as either prime minister or president. And for a long time, the assumption was that Putin as leader was more of a, a referee, an arbiter. You had the various groups around him being businessmen or technocrats or regional leaders or the army or the security services. And his role was to play them off against each other, to balance them all. And so they wouldn't necessarily influence him, but he'd listen to all of them and choose different directions. However, what we've seen in the current crisis is, is much more, even more than we usually expected, personalised control. Um, he was seen as a very personalised ruler, and over 20 years he's gathered more power around him as president. But this has really shown that all the assumptions we had two months ago, that still he listened to different voices, seems to be less likely uh, to be a real case. And when he came to power, he was not particularly well known. Maybe when he first came to power, he did happen to listen to the elites around him who had served under his predecessor, Yeltsin. But after 22 years in power, a good autocrat will eventually work out how to listen less and rely less on other groups. Okay, okay. Um, and related to this, how does he manage to control the ruling elite instead of that they control them? That's another thing which I would imagine has evolved over time. Um, as, a as any leader has the ability to offer jobs, 
um, spend money on pet projects, uh, provide more resources for the army or the security services or the police, or invest in certain regions or certain economic projects. So for a long time, it was seen as, compared to the relative chaos of the 1990s under President Yeltsin, under Putin, it was much more organized, stable. The budget was making money, in part simply because of oil price rises, not necessarily because of Putin's own economic genius. But it meant that there were resources available to keep different groups happy and also keep different electorates happy. Um, however, we've also seen from quite early on in Putin's presidency a willingness to crack down on opposition leaders or journalists or groups. And that has only accelerated and gotten worse over the last two decades, to the point where we have seen assassinations and long-term imprisonments. And now, again, with the war, a new range of regulations which are harsher than ever, so that you can't even call the war a war. And if you do it more than once and get arrested, you can face 10 years in prison. So over two decades, we've seen, on one hand, the ability to win people over or provide resources, but also a willingness more and more as that works less or the Russian economy is doing less well to resort to um, coercion and repression. But so far, and also putting more and more people in place who are completely reliant on Putin. When he came to power, there were other people in posts who had been put there by somebody else. Now, 20 years later, most of the senior people owe their success and their position to one person, President Putin. So they're not necessarily interested in getting rid of him because they owe their entire career to Putin. And that also goes for certain business areas or certain regional leaders or certain um, journalists or people working in society. So over time, again, we've got this heavy personalization of power, which has built up over 20 years. He didn't come in and immediately change everything. And everybody noticed it's step by step. It gets a little worse, a little worse. And everybody assumes that hopefully it won't get too bad. And now we've seen eventually, yes, we did see what you might expect with an authoritarian leader, a crackdown, and now people are trapped. Even if they were thinking, oh, I'll tolerate this because I'm doing okay in my business. Now it's like, oh, I'm not happy about this, but what can I do about it? And even the elite is not able to control Putin with all the resources. Because when you look at the elites, what you tend to find is the elites is not one group which all agrees with each other. So the elites is, depending on which you know, analyst or which think tank you look at, the elite is broken down into two or five or seven or 20 different competing groups. For a long time, the elites were happy, whether they be from the KGB or the former KGB, the FSB, or the business interests. It's like, okay, we've got stability, we've got economic growth, we're happy enough. We don't like each other, uh, but we're happy enough with Putin. Now, even if there is concern about the developments under the war, can they really get together and agree what comes next? Um, it's very easy to uh, decide perhaps we're concerned about new developments, but can they all agree? And therefore, we will do this, and we will have this person in charge next. So, and a lot of this comes back to what I was saying earlier about the habit of balancing, uh, being a referee, bringing people in, uh, excluding other people, and taking advantage of the disagreements within the elites, and even within things like the military and the security services. It's very easy to say, well, of course, the law enforcement and military bloc are one big thing, and they all agree and love each other. And in fact, there's huge amounts of infighting, even within 
these um, security elites. Uh, there's rivalries, there's different groups, which again, in the past, Putin has always been able to try and balance. And it might be that there's resentment in certain parts of the security services, but not all of them. And again, it's going to be easy enough to crack down on elements perceived as disloyal. There's already talk of certain people have been arrested or detained for poor performance in providing intelligence or things like that. So it would it would be impossible for elite groupings to come together to try and remove Putin, but it's not the elite. It would have to be various factions within the elite all come together and agree to do this. Otherwise, they'll undermine each other or plot against each other, I think. Okay, so Putin kind of uh, perfectionized the divide and rule. Yeah, yeah. which is very common. If you're a sensible autocrat, that's what you do. <laughs> you don't you allow yourself to become completely reliant on oligarchs or the secret services. Although that might be interesting now. There's far more attention being paid by Putin to secret services, the military, which means he's not listening to the other groups who might have usually said, maybe it's not a good idea to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which is what most of us thought. It's like, well, of course, he'll listen to other people. It'd be ridiculous to launch a full-scale invasion of Ukraine because actually what we've seen happen, Ukraine would resist. There would be a response from the West. Uh, I think the surprise might have been that there's been such a direct you know, and deep response from the West and that the Ukrainians have even more than you might have expected resisted and also the inabilities of the Russian army. Yeah, but that's more a case of always talking up the Russian army is great, we're a global power again, it's wonderful, and you sort of start to believe that, and they've been involved in conflicts before, but nothing as big as this. And this has revealed the paper tiger, or the mirage, or, or in Russian it would be the, um, the Pachonkin village of, oh, it all looks wonderful, you're always showing us missiles being launched and things you're doing, but in practice, it hasn't been a success at all. And we're not talking about elite, but if you mm -hmm. look at the common people of Russia, do they play any role in how Putin um, shapes his foreign policy or maybe his domestic policy, or is it just, just elite he cares about? Well, I think the fact that so much attention is paid to giving the appearance of overwhelming victories in elections and... Uh, state-run polling agencies providing figures which demonstrate huge amounts of support, there must be a concern that it has to be seen, that people must think this has got genuine backing. And more importantly, that the Russian people think this is what everybody else thinks. If I disagree, I must be wrong. Um, however, you're not necessarily going to have a lot of cases in which um, uh, ideas or responses or lobbying by the general public are going to make much change. And even elections don't really change anything. You have a, a party of the ruling uh, elites, and even the, op the opposition, in quote marks, parties in the state Duma are very, very loyal. So they don't really inform policy or decision-making. That's done within the presidential administration. I think there's also concerns in the uh, leadership that you can't control. If you start listening to public opinion, you can't control that. Uh, there have been occasions, certainly um, throughout Putin's presidency, when there have been complaints about socioeconomic matters. Uh, back in 2005, there were plans to change the welfare system, which produced big protests across the country, and that did reverse policy. But increasingly, any sign of protest which is not sanctioned must be a threat. And so perhaps in the past, there was a willingness to judge actions and opinions and, and make changes to policy in economic matters or social matters or welfare. 
that's all just gradually been worn away. And now if you have a protest which we haven't sanctioned, you must be backed by the West or the CIA or the Polish or whoever else. So that's gradually been worn away. But there is still a, a feeling that we have to be let people, the public know that we have support. It's not a complete totalitarian system where we don't care what people think. We will just crush them. But now it's more a case of we must make everybody think that we are right and everybody else thinks this as well. And so if you disagree, you're the outlier, you must be wrong, you know, shut up. Um, so it's trying to manipulate public opinion rather than listen to public opinion um, or appeal to public opinion. But, it's, you know, it's not a complete... You know, they still have elections. Well, there's talk this uh, today I saw of cancelling this year's um, regional elections. But for the moment, they, they have to have the pretense of this is the will of the people. We have elections. We're listening to them. But the reality increasingly is we want to have an election so that people see we have an election. But we're not really bothered about what you as a voter wants. Uh, we want you to think that everybody else wants what we've already done. So there's not... We have seen protests, uh, and we've seen them in the past... But there's not too much concern yet that um, um, this is going to be a big issue. But the fact that they've changed the law so much in the last two months to, to crack down on any form of protest, uh, offer even harsher prison sentences, shows that there is concern that you know, we have to be aware of public opinion. This could turn against us. If enough people turn against us on the street, that could be a problem. So we have to preempt that and try and make sure we don't get to that stage. And part of that is trying to convince the common people that everybody has agreed this is fine, don't worry about it. You know, nobody disagrees, um, we're doing the right thing. That's really interesting. Um, and looking at another part of the, this is more the elite, perhaps. Mm -hmm. yeah. But in what way does the Russian Orthodox Church influence Putin's policy, or is it more the other way around? The Orthodox Church is always interesting. Uh, we just had Orthodox Easter um, uh, this weekend. Um, and it's been interesting to watch the Orthodox Church regain power after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, I think um, it's probably going to be more the case that the Orthodox Church leadership has allowed itself to become a mouthpiece or represent the interests of the authorities rather than the persuading the authorities to take a more orthodox or traditionalist line. I think there's some sort of mutual uh, support there. You know, it's been useful more recently, since about, I guess, 2012, when Putin came back to um, power, to play up uh, traditional values and things like that. So then it's become useful for Putin to play up the orthodox side. And then the orthodox side has been willing to jump on that and take advantage of that to get more profile and interest and and things like that. Uh, in the first decade of, the, of Putin's presidency, there wasn't that much focus on things like uh, traditional values, conservatism, uh, plots by the gays and the lesbians in the West to come and corrupt poor, sweet, innocent Russia. Because in the first decade, the pro pro priority was economic growth, prosperity. You know, we'll do deals with anybody. We're not really bothered about social issues or culture wars. When it became more expedient to play to those audiences and those issues, then more attention was paid to the Orthodox Church. But I don't think that somehow the, the patriarch of all Russia has convinced Putin that you know, um, social issues, uh, cultural issues, uh, orthodoxy is uh, something you pay more attention to. I think it's more a case of it's been expedient to play up to those things. And because the Orthodox Church has been willing to talk about 
greater Russia and the Russian peoples, and even as far now as the uh, patri patriarch talking about this is a holy war in Ukraine. Um, I think it's more that the Orthodox Church has been co-opted by the authorities when it suits them, rather than Putin being won over by um, sort of orthodox traditionalist arguments. He may have those opinions. Um, he doesn't really say much about his own particular beliefs. He never has. Although he has taken to going to church and said, oh, actually, I was always a bit orthodox. Um, you know, he was at um, uh, uh, the ceremony on Sunday. Um, so it might be that he does hold these beliefs. Uh, maybe they have increased over time. But for the most part, the church has been an instrument of either domestic policy or foreign policy. And for the most part, most of the Orthodox Church has been willing to take on that role because they benefit from it, from it in terms of attention or exposure or perhaps access to projects or funds. And it's also maybe the fear that repercussions will happen? And it could be that as well, that um, um, if we start you know, taking an anti-war staff or talking about the sanctity of life or things like that, it might not go down well. Um, and also the current patriarch has been there for a long time, so it's very much in, ingrained in the current leadership. Um, and he's also got some very expensive watches. It's always something that's become a, a habit over time with uh, Russia watching is who's got the most expensive watches? All these uh, either priests or technocrats or who are, oh, yes, I just live on my salary as a um, you know, press advisor. And then they've got incredibly expensive watches. And it's like it's, people are making money in various places. So, um, but yes, there will be concerns within the church of those who might oppose the war and might want to do other things for the moment are going to want to try and uh, keep their head down until such a point that maybe you do see more and more elites agree this is, this is not in our interest, either as the Orthodox Church or as um, state-run businesses or even as the army. Some, at some point you might get that, to that stage where everybody agrees Putin is no longer serving our interests. We are no longer benefiting by having Putin as leader. Um, because for a long time, various you know, dissent into autocracy was tolerated if all the different key groups were getting their thing out of it. Um, uh, sort of a, a support for you turn a blind eye. So it's not affecting me. You know, it's a shame that people are being arrested or exiled or shot, but we're not being touched, so what do we care? Now there might be more concerns with the, both the domestic crackdown and the international conflict that this becomes. Is it really in our interest to keep backing Putin? Can we agree on somebody else? Um, which will be in our interest to allow us to keep making money or having influence or things like that. The risk then is that at that point Putin turns into the more autocratic leader who says, well, they, you'll have purges, you'll have mass arrests of elites. So that could be an issue which comes along the line, so uh, we shall see. Okay, I see. Uh, and also, which I find very interesting, you talked about the financial interest of, for example, the, the clergy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm also wondering, does this also influence Putin's policy in any way, like his own financial wealth? It's always hard to tell with Putin and his finances. You know, you have the reports which have been produced by um, Alexei Navalny about this huge $1 billion, very ugly uh, mansion, palace, <laughs> uh, built in the south of Russia near Sochi. It's very hard to keep track of. One would assume there's a mixture of, I suppose, Putin and his family and his confidants have already made all their money. Um, we don't know how much, and it's probably all in lots of trust funds or offshore banking or sitting in the Canary Islands or London or uh, Amsterdam um, or wherever else. So it's very difficult to keep track of. I suspect they've made their money. Um, in fact, if you go back into the history of the 1990s when Putin was serving in St. Petersburg for the mayor's office, 
you know, him and some colleagues bought some land and they started making money out of that. So back in the 90s, they were building up money. Um, I suspect, you know, elite groups around him um, may make donations or say, oh, we'll volunteer to build this for you. Perhaps um, nothing so um, uncouth as here's a bag of money, can we have a contract? Um, but I don't think there's prob the main concern now is keeping the money they've already got rather than trying to make more money. By all accounts, if you believe all the, you know, Putin uh, and his associates have access to a lot of money. Um, so I don't think it's so much looking for more money. It's more like, um, can we be in a position to make sure nobody checks later? So there'll be lots of things about, were he to ever actually just leave office, what sort of immunity would he have? Would his successor try and investigate him? Which is very much why Putin was chosen in 1999-2000 to replace Yeltsin. He was seen as a good successor who will not start investigating corruption and money-making by Yeltsin and his family. Um, so I suspect that's what they're going to focus on. Um, rather than necessarily, we need to make more money. I don't know if that's a, a plan. Now, in the wider elites, maybe they're thinking, oh, no, I haven't made my millions and millions yet. I want to make sure we still do that. But at the top, I suspect after you know, not only 22 years as president, but then, you know, a good five or six years in St. Petersburg working in the mayor's office in the wild 90s when anybody could make money and do dodgy deals, I suspect if they've been sensible, they've got a, a nice you know, nest egg stockpile. So um, I think it's, it's, uh, making money has been an added bonus rather than the aim of being president or staying in power. Um, yeah, actually, I have one more question. Oh, that question mentioned uh, Yeltsin's fear of being... Uh, yeah, of being investigated after his, his reign. And maybe it's yet, what you said, also applies to Putin, perhaps. Is Putin, can Putin even retire ever? I mean, we saw two years ago he changed the constitution. Well, he, 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 technically he didn't ask to change it. He made some suggestions and the parliament said, oh, why don't we change it so you can stay for another till 2036 or what have you. So it would suggest there were concerns of would it be practical to step down? That's, the other argument you would hear at the time was that because he was seen to have this role of referee and arbiter, is that the other elites didn't want him to go yet, because he was the one they all trusted to keep the balance. Uh, and so there was one argument that he had wanted to be ready to step down in 2024, but he was persuaded to at least provide the option of he could stay on. Um, however, with this war, there's no way, I think he sees himself that you know, any attempt to step down could risk being sent to The Hague, you know, uh, could risk um, problems on the ground. Uh, so I think it's very unlikely now that he's going to see it as safe to step down into another role. There was talk in 2020 that he would want to um, maybe move to a different position on a security council or um, something else. So he wouldn't be president, but he's around, keep an eye on things. And people at the time always talked about, ah, this is the Nazarbayev model in Kazakhstan. He resigned as president, uh, his you know, a successor took over, but he remained leader of the main party and head of the Security Council, etc., etc. And then in January this year, we had protests. Um, uh, uh, the current president exerted his authority. He was concerned that Nazarbayev's allies were plotting against him. And now uh, Nazarbayev, the former president, has been stripped of all these titles and posts and things like that. So if that had been seen as a model by other autocrats in the region, such as Lukashenko in Belarus or Putin, they're going to say it doesn't necessarily work. Even if you change the entire system and handpick your successor, they could turn against you. 
So I think where there had been talk of stepping back into a, a non-presidential role but keeping an eye on things where you wanted to, I suspect the practice of where that's taken place means, and the failures of that, means that uh, Putin, if he, were, if he was ever thinking, I will step into another role but keep an eye on things, he, can't, he would be thinking, I cannot trust that. And so I think now it is going to be president for life or president until deposed. So that would be my guess. Okay. Um, now we kind of want to make the jump to, of course, what happened in Ukraine. Of course, yeah. also still talking about Putin's ideology. Um, after the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, mm-hmm. has Putin's ideology, mostly his foreign policy, changed in any way? I think what we've seen is not necessarily a huge amount of obvious change since 2014, or perhaps more a case of what happened in 2014 and the rhetoric around that had already been building up. Um, um, 2014 was a surprise in that they actually went ahead and annexed Crimea, but all the talk around it wasn't particularly new. You know, just the complaints about Ukraine or NATO or the West or things like that. A lot of it would stretch back to the Orange Revolution in Ukraine back in 2004. I think that's when you see uh, Moscow and Putin starting to pay more attention to Ukraine as, a, as an issue or a threat. Um, but we'd sort of settled down into a, a status quo, I suppose, to a certain extent from 2014. You know, the usual complaints about we're not involved, it's nothing to do with us, you know, MH17 wasn't us, um, Crimea voted in referendum, the uprising in Donbass is completely local and we are outside observers and, and uh, mediators. Um, What's actually changed now is there's no pretense to do that anymore. You know, in the past it would be, it's not us, we're not there. So enough doubt that Western leaders don't commit to harsh responses because, well, there might be the counter-argument that maybe it's not actually them. And especially if you're dealing with, say, NATO or the EU, and you have 20-plus, 25-plus countries reaching agreement, all you need is enough for them to question, well, are we absolutely sure this was Moscow, that, you know, things get watered down. All that's gone this time. There's no pretense that, you know, we are not involved. It's absolutely, we have literally, you know, crossed the border, even though we're not calling it a war, you know, it's a special military operation. Um, They've sort of blown up that pretense of plausible deniability. Now it's sort of implausible claims that everybody else is having a war, but we're not. Um, So there wasn't really much... The only thing we've seen, perhaps, is the, the discourse and the rhetoric has gradually got harsher over time. Um, more particularly, um, more openly criticising actual players and actors in the West. There used to be general complaints about, there are people in the world who do not give us enough respect, or there are people out there who, who think they can control everything and not talk to us. It's become more, we are explicitly going to say, who we think is doing this. Um, but even then, I would have assumed at the end of last year into this year that there could be a renewed conflict in Donbass. But I was, as my students now, I was literally saying they're not simply going to send tanks across the border into Kharkiv. Because why do that? Because you used to get away with doing your plausible deniability. Arguably, towards the end of this year, Putin was getting what he wanted. There was divisions in the West, in NATO and the EU about supplying arms or supporting Ukraine. You could always use the plausible deniability of they're warmongering, they're all talking about war and we're not, we're peaceful Russians, see what they're like. I would have, it would have made more sense to continue that. 
but in actually sending tanks across the border, all you've done is, you know, really unite NATO and the EU far more than they have in the past. Sanctions have been redoubled more than anybody would have ever expected because it's so difficult to get the countries to agree on sanctions usually because of Russia's plausible deniability. It's expanded to countries which usually avoid sanctions like South Korea or Singapore or Japan. And it's completely galvanized uh, public opinion in Ukraine. Um, and it's demonstrated how bad the army is in practice. When it's faced with a, a real conflict, there's always talk of, well, look at Syria. But Syria, you invited in to crush some rebels. And even then, I remember the talk was, however, and they were literally showing, using Syria to show off their new weapons for future arms sales. Look at our missiles and, and uh, aircraft working. However, even then, there was talk of, however, there's problems with things like logistics. It's always been a problem. And supplies. You know, you've got great shiny new planes, but th there were problems here and there about the practicalities of that. And it's always, well, they'll learn from that and they'll improve on that. And then we got to this year, it's like, oh, they still haven't. You know, this was a problem with the invasion of South Ossetia back in 2008. It was noted, yes, it was a five-day war, great. However, it really showed off problems with logistics. And I really would have thought that by now, with the huge amounts of money they've spent on uh, the military, they would have improved that by 2022. But it's been real, oh no, you haven't. You've got all these shiny new um, military kits, which you love to show off at arms fairs, or in simple little conflicts, say Syria. But when you're faced with an actual invasion of, a, of the largest country wholly in Europe, that's a different thing to South Ossetia in Georgia or being supported, supporting a, an existing regime in Syria. And it's really shown that, oh, you can do small wars uh, with small enemies if you're being opportunistic. But if you actually want to try and invade Ukraine, it's, you know, we're two months into this now and um, they're still having issues with logistics and supplies and things like that. So you mentioned, uh, you already mentioned a couple of things about uh, Putin being an opportunist where he only sees an opportunity to invade or um, strongman an, uh, another nation into what he actually wanted, whether this was to uh, gain access or political power or whatever. Um, and um, in the past couple of decades, we have um, seen a debate in NATO and the EU, EU as well as to what their relationship with um, Russia it should be, um, even so much as to question the necessity of NATO itself, yet with the um, ongoing conflict in Ukraine, this has completely stopped and reversed itself. Um, what, what does this mean for the necessity of NATO? Is this a temporary thing or do you think this will change the entire future of it? NATO-Russia is, is always a big thing. There's been lots of debates. Um, what's interesting is, um, if you look back at the 90s, um, in many ways, NATO and the EU were sort of trying desperately to be nice to Eastern Europe and the former Soviet republics without actually offering membership. That was seen as a big thing, you know, again, as it is today, talk of antagonizing Russia. Um, so eventually we did move into enlargement and expansion. But initially, there was often talk of a Russia first policy, that the West didn't really know or understand a Ukraine or a Kazakhstan but let's, let's focus on Russia. Russia's big. Russia's got nuclear weapons. Um, Russia's being friendly. Let's have a good relationship with them. And somehow, magically, if that works, it will just work for everybody else. Um, but over time, other countries started to say, well, wait a minute. We exist, especially Ukraine towards the end of the 90s. 
they had a, for a while, they, they managed to agree with the US that there'd be regular summits between the Ukrainian president and the, the American vice president. But a lot of it was trying to please uh, Russia. So even when it came to all the debates about enlargement, you know, before that, uh, NATO and Russia signed the, the founding act, which was supposed to agree on progress coming forward. And at no point in that did Russia insist you never expand or enlarge. In 2002, with the next wave of enlargement, uh, when relations between the West and Russia were probably the best they were this century, they created the NATO-Russia Council, which annoyed many of the new members. They say, wait a minute, you're trying to give Russia a voice in this? We joined NATO because we've always been concerned about Russia. But the idea would be, you know, Russia wasn't going to be a member, but they could sit in on councils and hear discussions and so on. Once you had enlargement, you had far more members who were far more concerned or wary about Russia, uh, which is perhaps why Russia was worried about in enlargement. Because once that happened, you'd have more people who would be have a you know, recent memory of being under Moscow's rule. Um, all that sort of collapsed and fell away. It started to fall away after the war in South Ossetia. Um, but you know, once we get to 2014 and Russia annexes Crimea, then NATO starts to much more seriously uh, consider, listen, we've tried to not antagonize Russia. We've tried to include Russia in our discussions. And it didn't prevent anything. Maybe we should actually be aware or start really actively seeing Russia as a, a threat. And the rhetoric coming out of Russia by Putin's return to power in 2012 was far more about the greatness of Russia, rising power, end, you know, the decadence of the West and things like that. So um, in many ways, for a long time, you could argue that the West was attempting to not antagonize Russia, but even by really actively attempting not to antagonize Russia, you can always find you know, excuses and no, we're being antagonized. <laughs> this is a threat, we have to do something about it. So I think um, it's uh, sort of in many ways, uh, sh I've heard this before, that many of the new member states have said, you kept saying to us, oh, stop being you know, a Poland or a Lat Latvia, complaining about Russia, we're beyond that. These are all your, your old historic prejudices. We can work together. And now they will say, we told you so. We told you when we joined that you have to be cautious about Russia. And now it's like, oh, well, maybe, Unfortunately, under, at least under this leadership, we're going to have to assume that this is a military threat we have to contend with. Hence, you know, Sweden and uh, Finland talking about joining again. Hence, you know, looking at uh, reinforcing uh, NATO's eastern flank, um, which again had been really reduced from the 90s onwards. Once it was all about the war on terror, and it was Iraq, and it was Afghanistan, you know, the, amount, the presence on the ground in Eastern Europe was pretty low until 2014. And then you start seeing um, a, a renewed build-up, you know, rotating uh, forces in the Baltic states and Poland and Romania, which then, of course, leads Russia to say, well, of course, you're building up your forces, you're a threat, but you, know, you can always pick and choose which, which parts of the story to, um, to then justify your own actions. So, of course, you can make the narrative in Moscow that we have seen they lied about, they made promises about uh, enlargement, and you know, look, they're building up their forces in Eastern Europe, and we've done nothing to provoke that. Um, and so therefore we have to build up our forces. So, um, so I suspect this is going to be a longer term thing. Um, even if uh, Putin was to drop dead of a heart attack tomorrow, um, or even if the elites plotted against him and persuaded him to retire and go and play ice hockey somewhere, this does not mean that the next day there'll be democracy in Russia. The most likely thing, as is often the case with the collapse of an authoritarian ruler, is that his replacement is sort of authoritarianism light. So um, there would still be concerns um, 
uh, in the West and elsewhere about, okay, who is this new leader and are they really going to be less belligerent and uh, militaristic? Um, so I suspect at least for a while we're going to see uh, a new resolve within NATO and a new uh, uh, observation of you know what they could be doing and else and uh, because there had been sort of problems um, they well, you always heard this cliche in the early 2000s talking to military people in the west of oh the good old days of the cold war when we knew where the enemy was and how to deal with it but when you're dealing with the the international war on terror it's like well you know you're not dealing with a country you can like protect your border you're dealing with groups scattered around the world so I suspect there'll be a certain amount of reassurance of, ah, it's the Russians. The Russians are the bad guys again. Um, at least we understand them. Even, but even that's not true because the Russian policy at the moment militarily is not the same as Soviet in terms of tactics and so on. Um, but I suspect at least for, for probably quite a while now, there's going to be, you know, we, we've seen what's just happened. We, kept, we have to be um, aware because we kept assuming, don't worry, Russia will become more like us or don't worry, they're not going to be a military threat anymore. And then it took 20 years for it to, or just or 30 years to stop believing that. So even if everything stopped this year, and even if they you know Putin left, there's going to be caution of, okay, we'll give it a decade or two before we decide, yes, we can reduce NATO's presence or do less things in Eastern Europe. And there's going to be pressure from Poland and the Baltic states. Uh, and ultimately, if in 20 years Ukraine was ever to join, you know, they're not going to say, oh yeah, we've joined, now have a great relationship with Russia and forgive them everything. Um, Depending on what sort of transition were there to be one was to happen, who knows? Maybe it would be an extremely successful transition towards a democracy. But they're very, very rare. Uh, you just look at the history of authoritarian collapses in the last 50 years. Um, there's always the hope. Um, but you probably have to go through one other autocratic ruler before you then have a more successful transition to um, democracy, which is what we've seen in places like Georgia, and, you, and even they're struggling to what we'd call a, a full liberal democracy, but they're far more progressed than, than Russia or Kazakhstan or Belarus. So you've touched among, uh, uh, upon a great many things here. Um, I would like to address first where you talked about um, uh, Putin or Russia's fear of um, NATO expansion or aggression towards the Russians itself. Um, in your opinion or expertise, is this merely a um, facade of uh, Putin's propaganda or um, with the um, uh, talks about incorporation of Finland and Sweden and um, this renewal of NATO energy and liveliness, um, is, is it actually justified for him or the Russians to think it is? I think what's interesting when it comes to the attitude towards NATO enlargement, for example, is up into the, uh, the early 2000s, I mean, Moscow would grumble, but they wouldn't really put up, up too much of a, uh, a fight or a challenge to Poland or even the Baltic states joining uh, NATO. Um, the real resistance and the real rhetoric kicks up when there's the prospect of maybe Ukraine or Georgia joining from uh, sort of uh, the 2008 Bucharest summit in, uh, for NATO, uh, when both Georgia and Ukraine had been requesting a, an action plan to join and there was a debate within NATO and um, the Americans were happy to go ahead with that and the Europeans were like, Maybe not actually, let's not antagonize Russia, let's not, let's not offer specific steps on how to join. So that's where we ended up, you know. It was said, yes, you can join, but then we, they didn't agree on, this is how you'll do it. So the hope was, you know, Georgia or Ukraine would be happy that they'd been told they could be joined, 
And then Russia would be happy that they didn't actually offer a specific path to get there. Of course, it didn't work because Russia was still angry that this was an option and Ukraine and Georgia were unhappy that they weren't actually given a real path to membership. Um, I think whether people actually believe NATO is a threat, I suppose it's your attitude towards... Um, what's interesting is it's when NATO really comes into the, the post-Soviet sphere, apart from the Baltic states, who were incorporated later after World War II, so they're always a bit different. It comes into, no, this is Russia's privileged sphere of interest, as Medvedev called it when he was president, or Putin's talked about his red lines. It feels almost like, and as we've seen in the rhetoric now, is that the, the near abroad, as it's known in the post-Soviet space, well, no, as it's known in Russia, they're not, they're not abroad abroad. They're sort of nearly abroad, but they used to belong to us. Once they got into that territory, it feels more like, no, you're asking for a bit of Russia to join NATO. And so I think that's when it's like this far, but we still think we have control over this area and that they should do what we tell them. So any attempts to, to move towards either EU or uh, NATO in that part of the world is seen as uh, a, a step too far. And then maybe, it, no, we're really concerned we're going to lose what we, my rhetoric or my attitudes or my history tells me is part of Mother Russia. Regardless of what those countries think, of course, they're small countries in between Russia and the West. They have no stay in the matter, would be the perspective from Moscow, and to a certain extent, probably from Brussels and Washington. Uh, you saw some of that in the debates about uh, before the war started, of you know, people going, well, maybe you could do this, or maybe you could agree to be neutral, and you know, try not to antagonize Moscow. Why don't you agree to be neutral? Um, and then... That didn't happen. But then, so, you know, that's why it seems so odd that Russia went ahead and invaded, because you, you know, concerns in the West about possibly having a war meant pressure on Kiev to make concessions, and no pressure on Moscow to make concessions. All that's gone now. You know, they're never going to get back to that point. Uh, so it seemed, that's why it seems such a ridiculous decision to, to invade. I assume the assumption was it'll be quick and easy. Uh, and now they're stuck, because it's not been quick and easy. Um, so it could be a case that um, the elites truly believe that anything which might be happening with what they perceive as a part of the world they should have complete control over is really seen as a threat. Um, or it could just be useful rhetoric to justify what you want. It's hard to tell what they're actually thinking. In terms of the general public, of course, we've had in, you know, a build-up of state control over all media since Putin came to office. One of the first things he did was you know, um, close down or restrict independent television. Uh, but plenty of other things existed until, you know, really the m more recent years, we've seen a much harsher crackdown on independent media, which has only accelerated in the last two months. So there are going to be people who are only listening to state TV, which is still one of the main sources for Russians to get their news. For all the talk of social media and the internet, uh, most people... Um, are going to be actually look, watching the main state TV. Even amongst young people, I think it's fairly high. Um, so they are going to hear that, um, you know, they, we always knew they were plotting against us. See, Sweden and Finland are now planning to join. And all the rhetoric is that the only reason we're doing badly in the war is because actually it's not a war against, it's not a special operation. Sorry, if I'm going to be um, taking the Russian point of view, it's not a special operation against Ukraine. It, NATO is fighting a, a war against us, a proxy war via Ukraine, and that everything being done by Zelensky um, and uh, Kiev is actually being plotted in uh, Brussels and so on. So if you've been constantly told that, you know, if you were expecting a quick victory, 
And they're not thinking, why is it taking two months? Well, blame NATO. You know, it's not, we thought we were just helping in Donbass with a special operation, but NATO is using that as an excuse to then, you know, introduce these crippling sanctions or, um, you know, back uh, Ukrainian proxies who are not making any decisions. They're completely controlled by, by Washington or Brussels or Warsaw or whoever, whichever country is this week, this, this day's um, state TV is being cast as the bad guy. It's been a lot about the UK recently, apparently. We're plotting constantly. Um, Moscow has a much higher opinion of the UK as a, uh, to plot things than I don't think anybody in the UK would think. Uh, but it's been very much UK stuff. You know, we were rigging the, um, uh, we were faking massacres to blame Russia. Uh, we were we were apparently doing that because we were planning to launch a nuclear strike against Russia. Um, and you know, in next week it might be Poland who's the bad guy, or maybe there'll be lots of attacks against Finland. You know, if they or Sweden once they announce they want to join NATO. So I could imagine that. You know, if you're focusing on state media, um, you might be think you might you'd get the impression that NATO is yeah they have been building all this stuff. There. We were trying to have a special operation to protect people in Donbass, and NATO came in to to support the drug-addled Nazis in Kiev, which is preventing us from having our humanitarian almost mission in Donbass. So, and I think there's a, to a certain extent, it's very hard with opinion polling and stuff, but. You know, when you're in a country which has got itself mired in this, you just want to believe it's not your fault. You know, it's much, maybe it's easier to try and accept um, what you're being told rather than the face of the fact that, no, we've, this has actually caused a huge problem and, you know, people are being killed or bombed. Because uh, a lot of the talk is of, you know, faking bombings. You know, the Ukrainians are bombing their own cities, uh, things like that. So it might also be a case of sort of wanting to believe it's true but maybe at the back of your mind thinking, but this may not be true. So I can imagine that there's a, a proportion of the population who believe it or want to believe it. Um, and when it comes to the elites, some of them might believe it on their own terms in, in terms of, this is not about Russia. Russia is everything up to the Polish border. Uh, and therefore, if only they would realize that we should be allowed to have a say in everything going on here. You know, so maybe NATO isn't a existential exist, uh, threat to Russia, the Russian Federation in its current borders, but perhaps it could be seen as an existential threat to Russia, the wider Russian world, leading from you know, uh, Belarus and Ukraine and uh, Armenia out to Kazakhstan. Now, ever since the First World War, um, Russia or the Soviet Union has been making bilateral treaties with um, nations like Austria, Finland and um, the Ukraine where in, in exchange for um, non-interference or non-invasions, in um, those nations would remain neutral. Now with the invasion or second invasion, depending on how you look at it, um, of Ukraine, um, these agreements virtually mean nothing, um, forcing these countries to reconsider their um, foreign policy with regard to Russia and their um, uh, status towards NATO. Do you think that this um, slow encroachment as seen by Putin or the Russians um, uh, towards their borders or their sphere of influence has anything to do with? Why, why would they um, all of a sudden risk so much where Putin first was um, an opportunist and now he just seems like somebody who is taking huge costs um, over absolutely nothing? I think if, you, if we look at what was being discussed in the lead up to the actual war, you know, all the focus was on, all the rhetoric coming out was about NATO. You know, 
Um, what's NATO doing expanding? You know, we're concerned about NATO doing this. Uh, it, was, it was in the lead up to the war, it was talked about NATO is the problem. However, once we have the war, there's almost no mention of NATO. It's we're going to go in and demilitarize and denazify uh, uh, and rescue the Ukrainian people from their drug addled leadership. And suddenly, NATO was off the agenda. So one starts to suspect maybe it wasn't about NATO. Maybe it was useful to talk up NATO because then you can, as we were discussing earlier, do the divide and rule thing and have certain members of NATO say, we don't want to antagonize Russia. What are we going to do about oil supplies? The usual thing. Um, I suspect some of it was, um, and I have no idea, that there was, there was seen as, if we can ratchet up pressure, um, hopefully um, either the Ukrainians will cave or NATO or the West will make Ukraine make concessions because the West is too worried about a possible war. When that didn't happen, maybe it just got to the point of, well, we still, I want something to happen, let's just do it. And we think it'll be very quick, and if we do it quickly, it'll be, happen, the West will have no time to effectively respond. You know, it'll be the same as the South Ossetia War in 2008. You know, it was over in five days. You know, there was lots of hand-wringing by the West and tutting. But ultimately, it's like, what's well, happened now? Um, to a certain extent, the same with Crimea. You know, there'd been enough, you know, um, plausible deniability that by the time it became clear, yes, the little green men were actually Russian. Well, it's all over. What are you going to do about it? And are you going to start an international conflict over that? Um, and then with the um, attempt to manufacture uprisings in Donbass, that wasn't successful. You know, you didn't see you know, eastern and southern Ukraine fall in the same way. And we had that stalled thing of, you know, tiny rump republics in the Donbass, a, a typical frozen conflict, as they're called in the post-Soviet space. You know, there's no political solution, but for the most part, the fighting has stopped. And some of those have been going on for 30 years. You know, you might have expected we didn't have a, a quarter of a century of frozen conflict in Donbass. Um, and you can always meddle and cause problems doing that. So my assumption always was, if necessary, maybe like, fight some more arms for Donbass, or maybe, you know, send some troops in, in, in claiming to defend people there. So that was always my assumption up until the war started, that it's not going to be crossing the border with tanks, it'll be more meddling in Donbass, with the possibility of plausible deniability, because why not? That's what you've done in the past. So then it comes down to maybe just ego or prestige, or, you know, just deciding, we're going to do it. I'm going to Putin or his elites around him or his small group of close associates more likely because most of the elites, the wider elites were seen to have been left out of decision making, particularly if they were not in the security service or the military. Um, maybe it was seen as this will be my legacy. You know, I think it's going to be 70 this year. So, you know, maybe it would have been if I've united, if I've taken over, united the Eastern Slavic lands, maybe they will let me retire at 2024, you know, in a blaze of glory. Um, but it hasn't happened like that. So um, we shall have to see um, what's going to um, emerge on that front. But I think, oddly, all the things that Putin has complained about in the past, they, you know, they're providing arms, they're, they're trying to expand into other areas, uh, the Ukrainians have become very anti-Russian or Russophobe. Uh, well, he's created all that now. You know. Um, you know, Sweden and Finland have managed to not talk about joining for a long time, uh, and now they will. Um, um, my friends in Ukraine who are from Eastern Ukraine and speak Russian, uh, I notice now are using Ukrainian a lot more on their Facebook pages and are being extremely um, uh, anti-Russian state. Not anti-Russians, because many of them are ethnically Russians, but um, um, 
I think the other potential danger in the future, whenever all this is evolved, you are going to see a much larger sort of extreme nationalist element um, than ever existed before, uh, depending on how the war pans out. So it might be that ultimately Putin will create, uh, this war will create all the things he's complained about in the past, and he'll have nobody to blame it himself. Despite many phases in Europe turning against um, the Russians, especially in Ukraine, of, for, of course, um, despite this, a lot of politicians, especially far-right politicians, have not done so. Um, where we've seen in elections, such as with Viktor Orban in Hungary and uh, Marine Le Pen in France, that they still um, remain some type of alignment with uh, Putin's um, uh, ideology or Putin himself. Um, how do you explain in, in such times where um, this man is seen as one of the biggest monsters in Europe that um, politicians can get away with um, sort of aligning themselves with him? I mean, a lot of this we see probably going back again about a decade. You start seeing uh, parties on the right, on the far right, and also parties on the left, to a lesser extent, uh, latching on to Putin and Russia. Um, and in many ways, they're also using the image of being seen around the strongman for, the, for their own benefit. It was noted that Marie Le Pen pulped and destroyed all the campaign leaflets which had featured her with Putin, because that, she knew that would not be seen as popular. And lots of uh, far-right parties have done that in Italy as well. You know, Thierry Baudet is one of the few exceptions who is still proudly supporting uh, Russia. But lots of other countries, lots of other leaders have distanced themselves from, from Putin, which sort of demonstrates they were only ever fair-weather friends. When it suited them, great, you know, we will all take money from you, we'll go and visit Moscow, um, but once it becomes difficult, we will not be cheerleading for you in the West. Um, you tended to see, you know, what was, you know, in many ways, Russia and Putin, and his, his, almost his lack of a clear policy or um, ideology would be, Russia could appear like whatever you wanted it to be. So the far right said, oh, great, this is an anti-EU, um, they talk about conservative values and maybe being a little bit anti-immigrant. They must be on our side. On the far left, it's like, oh, they're anti-American. Um, they used to be communist and socialist. Um, that sounds good. They're on our side. Um, but, you know, they were, they were using other people's memories of what, what it means like to be with Russia or the Soviet Union for their own advantage. But what this war has demonstrated to a certain extent is they, they were not necessarily going to be loyal forever if it didn't suit them. In many ways, the same as the elites in Russia, ultimately. Uh, at some point, they might decide, you know what, it's not in our interests to be linked to you. Uh, please leave. And the same with some of the extreme left or right parties in the EU. Uh, some will still hang on. And he, but even with Orban, you know, he's been there for a long time. In many ways, he's using his relationship with Moscow as much as Moscow is trying to use its relationship with uh, Hungary. And again, although Hungary always grumbled, they have supported sanctions. And, they, they cause, and in many ways, they cause problems to try and get something out of Brussels. Well, unless we get this, or if you stop, unless you stop complaining about that, we'll hold up your arms supplies or your sanctions policy, whatever. But even since 2014, um, Hungary has not you know, caused sanctions to collapse. Um, so yes, for a while it suits him. I would imagine, I'm not an expert on Hungary, but I imagine part of it is, you know, if we talk up our relationship with, with Russia, if we say nice things about Russia, if we complain about Ukraine, it, to make us shut up, the EU will make a concession to us. I can imagine that's the policy. You, know, you don't stay in power for as long as Orban has without some wily you know, politicking. You know, so um, uh, that could be an issue. So both sides have used each other. Um, 
And what you see, I think you saw with Marine Le Pen, is that she moved on to more of an anti-war rhetoric. So we shouldn't have a war. So it's still sort of what Russia would expect, but not talking about um, you know actual pictures of her with um, Putin um, or um, um, head builders with. Uh, well, actually, I don't think head builders ever got to meet Putin. He's been to Moscow. I always use a, a photo in my class of him at the uh, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee of the State Duma, but I don't think he's ever actually. I don't even know if Terry Bordet has actually ever been to Moscow. Um, he always talks that things up, but I don't think he's actually. I don't remember seeing pictures of him in Moscow. <laughs> I don't think so. No. no. I don't think so either. Um, Maybe that's why he's still so loyal. He's never actually yeah, met. Yeah. <laughs> but I also also want to talk about the inter internal politics because it's been said that um, uh, before the elections in Hungary, um, Orban was a lot more anti-Putin, and now he now that he has won, he is taking a bit of a softer stance. Do you think that this is this could be a more common um, common pattern? A com more common pattern um, in all of um, right-wing politics in uh, Europe that they, when it suits them, they will um, abandon Putin as they have, as far as they have, uh, apart from Jerry, but uh, right now. Uh, and do you think they will come back to him once this ordeal is over? Well, I suspect once this ordeal is over, whenever they I think for this ordeal to actually be over, there will not be a Putin in power at the end of it. However, that comes to pass. Now, this could mean that this ordeal is over in five years. You know, we could be looking at you know a long-term trench warfare in you know eastern Ukraine. In which case, I imagine all politicians in Western Europe might also be thinking there's also the risk of at what point does it become too painful domestically to continue to provide uh, support for Ukraine. When people start saying, "Why should we should be helping these Ukrainians when my my you know shopping basket is going up in price or things like that?" So I think on, as with all politics, you know, there's a risk that um, you know um, um, certain politicians will become you know less vocal in support of um, uh, Putin when it suits them. But equally, in the medium term, maybe more and more politicians will be more quiet about their solidarity with um, Zelensky in Ukraine when it suits them. So, but that's, that's politics and that's international relations. Um, so it's been interesting to see the, the appeals to public opinion in the West and successes that Zelensky has had with, um, as a former comedian and with a lot of performance experience to, um, to really you know, keep support uh, across a wide range of countries who are going to apply pressure to um, leadership. I think interestingly, he's probably they've probably understood that you know we've seen what happened in the past. You know, resets, concessions, oil prices, things like that. You know, elections coming up. It's like oh, you know. However, I'm going to have an election next year, and people complain about energy prices. So maybe we're, it's been three years. Come on, let's just make some concessions. You know, a certain selfishness, whether it's a right wing politician or a left wing politician in uh, northern Europe or southern Europe. So there is going to be that element. So I think it'll be, it's been interesting to see very much trying to appeal to the public, uh, direct appeals to publics that uh, Zelensky has done, either through, not only through broadcast to parliaments, but also, you know, um, uh, YouTube videos or things in various languages. So it's going to be, which is, Russia is not really attempting to do. I mean, they've got their domestic state propaganda, which is basically running practically 24-7, which nobody outside Russia really believes, just gets mocked. But if that's going to work for you domestically, then they're going to focus on that. Maybe they're not going to. And with Sputnik and uh, Erte being shut down in much of Europe, 
maybe there's, some, there's no attempt to try, there's no point trying to convince the West. We must try and make sure that our public is completely behind us. Or if they're not behind us, that they don't dare to actually challenge us. Um, and there may be elements of the rest of the world. For all the talk of, you know, an international pariah, well, actually, a lot of the world is still trading with him. You know, depends what you want to look at, you know. Not a lot of support in the UN General Assembly, when it was only, I think, Eritrea, Belarus, North Korea, Syria, and somewhere else I can't remember, uh, criticise. North Korea, Belarus? Syria, Syria Eritrea. Uh, Cuba, maybe? Maybe Cuba. Yeah. Or Nicaragua, they often support. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, um, so everybody else did, you know, didn't, but you know, not everybody has introduced sanctions, in part perhaps because there aren't many you know, trade things, or in part places like India are concerned about their own balancing act between China and Russia. Traditionally, India, going back to Soviet times, has been more friendly towards Russia or the Soviet Union, and they're more concerned than about China. So they sort of have been staying out of things, you know, not too critical, uh, which is usually the Chinese policy towards criticism of Russia is... Um, we will, um, we will be, uh, abstain, you know, we will not get involved in things. Um, so around the world, different politicians will try and use the crisis for their own benefits at different points. And sometimes that might align with what Russia wants and sometimes it might align with what Ukraine wants. But they're always going to be, to be honest, following their own political interests. Yeah, that makes sense. Then, uh, yet basically, the, the last part of this interview um, will be about uh, Putin's legacy, like mm -hmm. his current ambitions, um, the effect of this war in Ukraine, of course. What else can we expect from him, and what, yeah, what, which legacy is he building and uh, leaving behind? Um, so, basically, the first question is like, what is the legacy that Putin is trying to build for himself, um, and to what extent does this? align with the interest of the Russian people? Putin and legacy, I suspect, has been much on his mind, as with many long-standing leaders. You know, what is my legacy going to be? Um, oddly, if he'd maybe stepped down in 2008 after his first two terms, or maybe in 2012 after, his, after a short period as prime minister, he would have probably gone down as an incredibly popular and successful Russian leader. You know, it would have been after the perceived chaos of the 1990s, you had stability, Economic growth, uh, increasing respect on the world stage, you know, Putin brought Russia up from its knees and set it on a path for a bright and prosperous and, you know, successful future. But he didn't do that. He stayed on for another decade. And uh, we're now at a point where you've got economic collapse, instability. Um, maybe people see as your world power, but you've turned, you've ex withdrawn yourself from the global community, globalization. Uh, there's been lots of talk of he's destroyed everything that would have been his legacy uh, and maybe brought Russia back to the situation it was in in the early 90s or the mid 90s. The, the time he always compared himself to saying, but we're not like the chaos of the 90s. So I think he's very much destroyed the legacy he would have had. Uh, I, th I suppose the gamble was that you know, a quick, successful conquest of either regime change or conquest of the whole of Ukraine would have been the final grand, you know, the, the, the Putin would go down as a man who united the East Slavic peoples. You know, a, a, a comprehensive defeat and conquest of Ukraine probably would have finally pushed uh, Lukashenko and Belarus in, into having to agree to um, a, a formalized union state in which he was became a second fiddle. 
and lost power. Um, and that's the thing, nice thing to go out on, you know. Putin, the almost a Tsarist, you know, the, the, united of the uniting of the lands, you know, he rebuilt the Russia of Tsarist times. You know, he can probably ignore Central Asia or the Caucasus, but this would be enough, you know. And you'd use the rhetoric of, um, and these people wanted it, you know, that the Ukraine was being corrupted by MI6 or the CIA, um, and the Ukrainian people really wanted to finally be brought back to, to Mother Russia. And when you look at the Eastern Slavs, there's always talk of family. They're brotherly nations. It's Mother Russia. Um, but, and maybe he believed all that, which is why they pushed through with this um, ill-planned invasion, which wasn't really built to be a proper invasion. Um, it also shows, uh, for all the talk of the build-up, I mean, the first wave of build-up was about a year ago uh, of troops, and then it was renewed in the autumn. Maybe it was for show, because they didn't actually plan for an effective invasion. Maybe lots of people involved thought, yes, we're building up because we can. It will apply pressure, coercive diplomacy, as they call it. We know what the West's like. We can divide. They'll get divided. They'll panic because they don't want a war and they want oil and gas from Russia. They will lean on Zelensky and the Ukrainians to, to make some concessions that we would then not feel worried. Of course, we now know that even if that had happened five years later, there would have been a complaint about something else. You know, Even if Ukraine had said, we will be neutral um, or we will we promise not to try and join NATO. The rhetoric which has been used now about they're not, the Ukrainians are not a real people, uh, they don't have any sovereignty, another excuse would have been found to, to engage in invasion, even if it wasn't any NATO stuff or EU stuff. So I think that's a clear thing now. Um, so I think the legacy, I think for him, the legacy will probably end up being he was the one who having... Um, been present at the recovery of Russia was ultimately present at the, the next downturn. Uh, it just depends on how seriously the, the collapse or the, the, the internal strife becomes in Russia, whether it is just a, a palace coup and he's ousted, or whether it just leads to discontent, violence, uh, successionist tendencies um, within the Russian Federation itself. Uh, so we'll have to see whether it's just like, you know, he, he's the cause of another dip, or he ends up being the cause of another major decline, um, or even you know, bits of the Russian Federation seeking independence or dropping off or things like that. And maybe it's kind of like speculating, so I'm sure you won't be cautious with this, but is it likely that he will be ousted from power? That's probably the 50 million euro question. <laughs> and I, I suppose I expect a lot of people would, would like to hope that's how it gets resolved, because then we don't have to have a war and we don't have to spend too much money on stuff. Uh, that the Russians do it themselves, or it's done internally. It could happen, but I think at the moment, not in the short term. As we said, there's too many, for all the centralization of power, um, there's too many other people involved or implicated or depending on the existing system. Uh, there might be certain groups who uh, are benefiting from or enjoying this conflict. Um, so to actually bring together um, unity within the uh, security and military services, that they all agree they're going to remove uh, Putin. Because that would be the issue. Even if the military did, but the security services didn't, you know, you've still got the security services who are going to be able to undermine or challenge the military. Um, or even if um, regional leaders and economic elites agreed he has to go, they haven't got any of their own resources to then challenge. Well, if the military and the security services are fine, you're all going to prison. They can't do anything about that. But there could come a point where it just becomes untenable 
that things are going badly for everybody else in the elite, that they agree that something has to happen. And then the next step would, would be that they agree what that something should be. Um, and there's the issue of, okay, who is the successor? Because you know, it could, could also be, what if there's a military coup? You don't have many of those nowadays, but it's not impossible. You know, if, if things go badly in Ukraine, and then you know, Putin starts blaming the military, you know, you know, it's like, you're all terrible. You know, you're going to be dismissed. You know, it's like, wait a minute, your decision to send us here, and it was your secret services who gave us wrong information, something like that. You know, what, what if that happened? Um, which wouldn't necessarily lead to democracy. It would lead to a military leader who might then double down and say, right, now we're going to fight a proper war, <laughs> and we're going to go on a complete war footing, and uh, we'll have full conscription and mobilisation, and it leads to something even worse. And we go, oh, well, at least with Putin, we didn't have all this. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Or it could be that it's just like a popular protest. You know, it becomes the point where different, whether it be um, um, liberals, middle class in urban areas, but also more and more people who are seeing problems with the cost of living, or ultimately more and more bodies of sons uh, coming home, uh, that the public says, we do not tolerate this anymore. And uh, you have some sort of uh, third, second, third, depends how you count them, Russian Revolution. Uh, depends if the count, count, collapse of the Soviet Union counts as one. But, uh, so, but I think at the moment, that one of the problems for um, a palace coup, so to speak, is there's no obvious person who would, be, who would step in. Uh, because again, if you've been in power for a long time, you make sure there's no obvious successor. Mm -hmm. Because everybody around you will start to think, well, you're going soon, you're 70 nearly, let's start moving our loyalties towards whoever we think is going to be your successor, be it the, the prime minister or the finance minister or a general or something else. So if you think about the, the top people at the moment, the, uh, Lavrov as foreign minister has just been there forever. You know, he's not an obvious replacement. Shoigu, the defence minister, is usually seen as very popular and he's been there forever. But then this is a war thing. So if the, if the concerns are about the conduct of the war, how can he be the one to replace Putin? Unless it's to double down on, you know, we're, we're going to fight a proper war um, because the leadership has betrayed us. Um, it's almost a stab in the back idea that somehow they'll have to cast Putin as the problem. That we would have won this apart from Putin. And then maybe they'll play up, you know, issues around his uh, capabilities. More speculation about his health, uh, things like that. So all I can say is it's not impossible, but I wouldn't hold my breath and expect that it will be the immediate solution at the moment. But if we're into a two, three year unsuccessful stalled war, which is having more and more effects on uh, domestic politics, domestic population, and that it's looking bad for the army, and they feel that it's not their fault, you know, you have something like that, um, or everybody agrees that this is, we're throwing money away and we're not achieving anything, um, if we just got rid of Putin, then we can just make, maybe we'll get some concessions still. But, um, but the feeling would be that with Putin there, nobody's going to, to uh, for all the talk, meet Moscow halfway, which you still hear from, you know, uh, some European leaders. If we just meet Moscow halfway, that's going to become incredibly difficult. It'll be impossible for Ukrainian public opinion. Very difficult for Western public opinion now. You've got all the mass graves and things like that. Um, but if you had a new leader, often when uh, somebody's, Clap, stepped down and replaced. There's a lot of forgiveness for, we don't know who this new person is like, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. If you look at Syria with Assad, when he took over from his father, his father was seen as a ruthless you know, leader, 
but his son is like, well, you know, he, he went, he got, he trained in the UK at a school because we, we have a tendency to um, um, uh, provide lots of people with training in the UK. <laughs> Uh, and so I was like, well, let's see what he's like. Maybe he'll end up, maybe he's going to be harsh at first, but maybe he'll start moving towards it. No, he didn't. But there's a lot of forgiveness for a while. Well, let's see what happens. So uh, anybody stepping in, there might be some, let's see what's happened. Let's lift some of the sanctions to encourage him to open up more, or her. It probably won't be a her, but maybe it would be a her. Uh, to open up, you know, let's like give them a little time. Oh no, it hasn't changed anything, but, or maybe it would. So... Yeah, this actually really leads to like the final question of this interview, which I'm really, really interested in. It's also kind of speculating again, but would this war, this invasion of Ukraine, also have happened if Putin was not in power? I mean, attitudes towards Ukraine are not unique to Putin. Um, you can find comments made by Yeltsin of, well, we are one people and we are all brothers. Uh, I think in general, arguably, there was an attitude amongst many Russians of we are we are one people you know we are all less you know they they don't really speak a different language it's basically just a dialect of Russian um, I think that's gone down over the last thirty years but now it's peaked again with all the new rhetoric and the the propaganda about Ukraine so there could have been a different person who got us to this point we'll have to find out in the history books how much. Putin being in isolation for two years during the um, COVID pandemic allowed him to, you know, focus on his uh, poor interpretations of history, to to double down on all these resentments he's built up over 20 years of why don't Ukraine realise how much we love them? I've seen discussions of it's like um, victim blaming or a battered wife. I love you. I love you so much. Why are you moving away from me? If you didn't move away from me, I wouldn't have to beat you. I mean, that is, that's literally what's happening in a way, you know. Um, so maybe it is him that he's the only one who would, who, who would then spend two years in, in stewing over his resentments and then coming out into a conflict. Because I think before 2020, 2019, usually the talk was pragmatic Putin. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll use a language if necessary. And maybe his personal opinion is he doesn't like Ukrainians or think they're real. But he had a variety of people around him, not just... Um, Secret Service and military, you know, his, his reputation was built on stability and economic growth. Why undermine that by launching a, a war? So it might be that another leader would have found himself in a similar situation, but maybe Putin's two years of isolation and maybe just his own, I have no personal opinions, resentment, were allowed to fester. And so the, maybe the question should be, if there hadn't been a pandemic, would this have happened? Uh, but we don't know. We can't do that counterfactual. But there has oh, been lots yeah. of speculation. That he's become, so, I mean, all autocratic leaders become isolated. But um, the pandemic isolated him even more. And his insistence on, you know, people who met him had to spend two weeks in full quarantine just meant he was listening to less and less people who maybe then fed into is, yes, we can beat Ukraine. You know, and apparently he was listening to the secret services more than, say, the military. You might have said, well, let's look at the practicalities of actually trying to invade. That seems to have been ignored. You know, um, a lot of the earlier forces were sort of elite uh, Secret Service people. They seem to really believe we can sort of parachute in and maybe like seize key buildings in Kiev and everybody will just say, oh, well, and you'll be welcomed with in the tradition in Russia, in Russia and Ukraine of bread and salt and flowers. Um, Interesting, the person within the FSB, the Secret Services, who was responsible for Ukraine and gathering intelligence, is one of the people who allegedly has now been detained. 
because maybe he was feeding back. All the all Ukrainians hate the current leadership. They love Russia. If we just go in there, they will, we will have to do nothing. You know, we'll parachute a few people into Kiev. They'll seize a building. They'll arrest or kill Zelensky, and the people will be dancing in the streets. And maybe they still really believe that. And we'd got to a point where nobody was offering the counterpoint. Um, who maybe would have been there 10 years ago, or even five years ago, or three years ago before the pandemic. But we don't know. I think we will eventually have to wait for the historians on that. So, But it does seem to have ended up being a very personal thing of for Putin, of his resentment towards Ukraine never doing what he wanted them to. Again, going back to the Orange Revolution, Russia and Moscow had very openly backed the, um, the, the, the pro-Russian candidate and um, with no plausible deniability. So when that person did lose there was a certain resentment about all that. Um, so maybe it's been building up since then. It's like, Ukraine didn't realize that I didn't want this person to be in charge. This other person should have been in charge. Don't you realize you're Ukraine and we are Mother Russia? You should be doing what we want. If you do have that attitude, this imperial mindset or this uh, post-colonial mindset that, again, this is the near abroad. It's not real abroad. Um, this is not an independent country with an independent identity and language. This is a, a, a sub, subset of Russia. That they speak a, a dialect. In Russian, they would often call it a grazny, a dirty language. They're just not speaking Russian properly. Uh, but in 30 years, Ukrainians have all been increasingly using Ukrainian. There is a different historiography. Um, same with Belarus. Um, you've seen, and you've seen many uh, Russians start to accept, oh yes, they, they are different. But perhaps Putin never really wanted to believe that that there is a different Belarusian or Ukrainian uh, identity. Okay, um, okay. Thank you very much for this uh, interview today. Um, you're very pleased to have you uh, see you today. Um, Thank you very much for an interesting set of questions. It's always <laughs> nice to just uh, chat for a while. Exactly, I agree. And uh, yeah, of course, everyone check out uh, the book on Lukashenko, which is uh, it's in related, the <laughs> related, related topics, but then more another uh, strongman in. Uh, the Russia-Eurasia region. Yeah, once again, thank you very much.